Father, that um, song that we, we sang, uh, it's an old song, Be Thou My Vision. Father, as a church, that is our prayer. We want you to be our vision. We want you to be our focal point. We want you to be our goal. Lord, we want you to be our wisdom. We do not want to follow the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is, is, is hollow. It will not last. It does not lead to a life that is glorifying to you. Lord, we want to value you, prize you above all earthly riches. And Lord, you know that this world offers a lot of enticing things, shiny things, things that promise to, to do what we want it to do, but in the end, it'll still prove hollow. We want you to be our riches. Lord, you are our high king of heaven. And Lord, we are amazed at the fact that you would um, love us so much that you would offer us salvation that we don't deserve, that we don't earn. And Lord, the, the, along with that salvation, the promise of living eternally with you as the ultimate king of the universe. And so we're thankful for that. We're humbled by that. And Lord, the opportunity that we have right now um, as a church to dive into your word is, a, is, is amazing. We thank you so much that we can do this. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us, Lord, that we would open up our ears and our hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, that you would guide and direct my words as well. That what I say would be what you want me to say and would be glorifying to you and that we would be changed. I thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. We are going to continue our series looking at this ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church located in the city of Philippi, hence Philippians. He's writing to the Philippians. And Paul is writing this letter uh, while he's a prisoner uh, in Rome. And uh, prior to his imprisonment, he was going around to different cities and he was proclaiming the gospel. He was planning churches. He was uh, training up leaders. And eventually, and God was blessing. That, just the church was exploding. And eventually, Paul uh, made his way down to uh, Jerusalem. And there he met some pretty hostile opposition from the religious leaders, which makes sense. The religious leaders probably thought that Paul was a traitor because Paul used to be one of them. Paul used to uh, be a religious leader who was absolutely zealous, uh, passionate uh, about opposing those who follow Jesus. And, and he, he approved of the, the stoning of a, of a church leader, um, and, and I think Stephen, and, and then uh, the, he, he approved of other brothers and sisters in Christ getting arrested and thrown into prison um, until Jesus showed up and he was like, oh, now I know who you really are. You are who you say you are. You are the king. And uh, he ended up giving his life over to Christ and that changed his life completely. And so these religious leaders in Jerusalem are like, well, I don't like him. We got to get rid of him. And so they lay a whole bunch of accusations on Paul and they just want him to be judged and that's it. Be done with it. 
But Paul, he's a, he's a, a Roman citizen. He exercises his right uh, to have a trial uh, in, in Rome before the Caesar, who was at that time Nero. We, Nero wasn't really particularly fond of Christians. Uh, but so they, they, they ended up sending Paul to, to the city of Rome and just getting to Rome was a, a huge ordeal to begin with. Uh, but once he was in Rome, he was most likely placed on house arrest uh, 24-7 chained by the wrist to a Roman guard, and the guard would rotate every few hours. And um, it was not the Roman guard's responsibility to provide for the needs of their prisoners. And so the prisoners really had to rely heavily on the contributions from family and friends. And so the church in Philippi heard of Paul's situation, and they put got together this collection and they send it along with a guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus travels almost like 800 miles, mostly on foot. He gets sick, almost dies, continues going on. And eventually he arrives in Rome and presents Paul with this uh, amazing gift that provides for his needs. And Paul in his thankfulness and his, his appreciation, he writes this letter uh, to the church in Philippi. And last week we uh, stopped at chapter two, verse 18. This uh, we we're going to actually go from verse 19 all the way through to the end of the chapter. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage all the way through so we kind of get the context and then we'll take our time going through it. So uh, chapter two, starting at verse 19, Paul says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy." And hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. This section of scripture could easily be described as a traveling itinerary. You know, this is the, uh, the, the airline ticket information. This is the hotel reservation no, you know, confirmation number. This is the rental car agreement. You know, and, and, and for some people, they would say, oh, you know, it's, it's interesting. This kind of gives us a, a glimpse as to first letter writing, uh, but it's really, let's, let's go ahead and skip it. Let's, go, let's move on to chapter three where the juicy part begins. You know, let's go ahead and do that. But if we study this passage more carefully, we realize, um, first off, that typically these itineraries were saved for the, la the end of the letter. You know, that's when they would bring up. When they're done with writing what they had to say, they would attach their personal, you know, uh, agendas of what they were wanting to do. Uh, here, Paul places it right in the middle of his letter. So the question is, well, why did he do that? 
And when we study this passage, we have to study it in light of what Paul has just been going through. And so it go, in Philippians, go to chapter 1. Go to chapter 1 to verse 27. Here, Paul gives us his apodosis or apodasis, his, his, his main point, his, his main command. And that is, verse 27, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's telling the Philippians, Philippians, you are citizens of God's eternal kingdom. And as such, you are to live your life in such a way that it is fitting, that it is appropriate for those who proclaim the gospel, for those who follow Jesus. And he's going to spend the rest of the letter expanding on this. How does it look? Well, in chapter two, starting at verse two, he gives another command. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says, basically, make my joy overflow by being united. Well, how does that look? Do nothing, verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit or vain pride, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look at your own interests out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So how does it look like for a, a citizen of God's kingdom to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, it means walking in unity. And that unity is fueled by humility. And then he continues on. How does, let me show you, Paul basically shows uh, the, the perfect example of what humility looks like. And he brings up Jesus. That Jesus, because he's God, had every right to exercise his authority and his power, but instead he laid it aside, took on the uh, posture of a servant, of a slave. And he was submissive to the Father, God the Father, all the way till it led to his death, even death on a cross, a very painful, shameful way to die. And as a result, God has exalted him, placed him in a high position above every name that could be named. And that phrase in the first century really meant some, meant a lot, especially if you came from a background of mysticism and magic. Because if you were a practicer of those things, uh, naming names was really important. Your name represented uh, who you were. It was your character, your authority, your position. And so many people would name the names of different spirit beings in order to gain control of things over their life, their fate, their destiny, or have you know welfare, favor in their life, prosperity in their life, security, safety for their family and health. But here Paul's saying, that Jesus has been exalted above every name that is named. He is above all rulers, all authorities, both physical and spiritual. And eventually every knee is going to bow, whether willingly or forcefully, they're going to bow and every tongue is going to confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Then all of a sudden he brings up two individuals, a guy named Timothy and a guy named Epaphroditus. In reality, these two individuals are two examples of what Paul has just been talking about. So you want to know what it looks like to be humble? Look to Jesus. You want to, look like, you want to see an example of individuals who are following the example of Jesus? Look to Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so that's where we come to our, our section. These two in, uh, men, these two examples for us. So let's go back to chapter 2. And uh, we'll begin once again at verse 19. 
Paul says, but I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly or as soon as possible. Why? So that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. When he says, so I may be encouraged, it it literally means to be well-sold, to be in good spirits, to be comforted. Paul loved the Philippians. I mean, he loved them. He was there right when the moment they, the church was birthed. He, he wants to hear how they're doing. He's like, hey, I want to know, how's Lydia? Is she still hosting that Bible study in her, in her house? Is, what about the Roman guard? I heard he was wanting to plant a church. How's that going? You know, how are they at studying the word? Are they growing? How has God been using the church significantly in Macedonia? I want to know. That's going to give me so much encouragement. So his desire is to send Timothy as soon as he can. But look how he begins in in verse 19. He says, but I hope, I hope, he uses the Greek word elpizo, which isn't this wishy-washy, I wish, but I really don't know if it'll happen. Like, I I wish, you know, something's going to to send Timothy, but I really don't know. You know, this this is a, 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 this really is a confident expectation. It's a confident expectation, but notice the source of his hope. The source of his hope isn't the fact that Timothy's going to go visit the, the Philippians, nor is it in his authority as an apostle to send uh, Timothy to go be with the, 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 the Philippians. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus, which is a very unique way Paul describes or mentions Jesus. Most of the time, whenever Paul brings up Jesus, it's usually Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, or Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here he says, the Lord Jesus, the Lord, Kyrios, the master, the ruler. So Paul's saying, listen, I have hope, not in the fact that Timothy's going to go visit you and you, know, you Philippians, not, not in my authority as an apostle to send Timothy to you. I have hope in the one who's in charge. And I trust the one in charge. I know him. I love him. And I know he's good. And whatever happens, whatever he allows in my life, he's still going to be good. In fact, he's going to work all things for good. Remember, we looked at that passage a number of weeks ago in Romans 8, 28. God works all things for good, not for everybody, to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, good doesn't necessarily mean happy, doesn't necessarily mean your life is going to be all cupcakes and rainbows. I mean, Paul admitted that. Paul said, I'm, in su- I'm, I'm suffering, but God's using it for good. He's, he's using it to advance, further advance the gospel. He's using it to inspire other Christians to boldly and courageously proclaim the gospel. This is all good stuff. So he's like, I put my hope in the Lord. Now for uh, many of us, especially if you've been attending church for a while, this is a very familiar truth. Of course, put your hope and trust in the Lord, not in anything else. And we go pointing our fingers, all those other people out there, you know, they put their hope in, you know, polit- politics and leaders and medical technical advances and their financial s- you know, security and all that is just a, 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 a weak foundation. And I would agree with you and God's word would agree with you. But here's the thing. If we're not too careful, even if we say, oh, I do put my hope in the Lord, we can still end up putting our hope and trust in something or something else other than him. I'll give you one example. I have a, a, an aunt. She's actually the half-sister of my mom and my other aunts. Up until a few uh, uh, years, we didn't even know she existed. She lives in another state in, in Arizona. 
And uh, when we found out that she was there, we were like, hey, let's, let's meet this relative, this half-sister. And when we did, oh man, she's just gold. She's a wonderful lady. She loves Jesus. She's a nurse and she loves people. I mean, right away, I, I didn't even know. I, I met her a few times and right away when last time I, I, I wouldn't, when I saw her after only like maybe two or three times, she started referring to me using this uh, Spanish uh, phrase, mijo. Hey, mijo, which literally means my son. That's not a term that you would use to anybody. That's a, 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 a close, intimate term that you would only use to someone you really care about. And I was like, oh yeah, I know she loves me. And she doesn't just tell us how much she loves us. She shows how much she loves us. Um, last, uh, last summer, um, summer, let's pause for a moment to <laughs> mourn the end of summer. Um, <laughs> summer's gone. But last summer, uh, my family and I, we were in Southern California and uh, my uh, visiting family and my uncle had a massive heart attack. And he was taken to the hospital and we didn't know what was going on. We couldn't get into the hospital because of re- restrictions. My aunt, because she's a nurse, can get into the hospital. She had just finished a really long um, shift. She got into her car, drove eight plus hours to the hospital where my uncle was to see, you know, to get an update. I mean, that, that's just what she does. And, and, She's not the only, that's not the only person I have in my family who's that amazing. I have tons of aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins who are exactly like that. They're just, and I, I again, I, yes, amen. I, I know how blessed I am because I, some people, they don't have family like that. You know, some don't even have family at all. So I understand I am extremely, extremely blessed but if I'm not too careful, I could end up putting my hope and my trust in that blessing rather than the one who blessed me with them. And some of you may be in that situation. You have a really great family, maybe not a huge extent, maybe just your, your, your immediate family, really strong, close-knit family that you can rely on, maybe even a good circle of friends that you can rely on. It's the same thing. They're a blessing. We rejoice in that blessing. But we have to be careful because if we're not, we may end up putting our hope and trust in them rather than the one who's in charge. Paul says, I have hope. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly or as soon as possible so that I also may be encouraged so that I may be in good spirits when I learn of your condition. Now he's going to describe who this guy Timothy is, starting at verse 20. For I have I possess no one else of kindred spirit, literally of equal soul, who will genuinely, naturally, really be concerned or anxious for your welfare. Paul wasn't the only one who loved the Philippians. Timothy also did as well. I mean, Timothy was with Paul right when the, the church was started. He worked with the people. He loves the people. He cares and he wants to know how they're doing just as much as Paul wants to know. And this word, this word again, they use kindred spirit. Um, that just shows you the kind of relationship Paul has with Timothy. Uh, kindred spirit doesn't mean that T- Paul and Timothy were clones of each other. It means that they were of the same mindset. They were of the same heart, the same uh, 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 joys, the same uh, goal, the same desires and goals and affections. 
Again, it just shows you the kind of relationship. Paul really loved Timothy. He trusted Timothy. In fact, there's many uh, times where Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy over to you uh, to, because I trust him and I know he's going to teach you what, what needs to be taught. Um, Paul, um, I think in the letter to the, first, the, the, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, um, Paul says, you know, I want you Corinthians to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And for that reason, I'm going to send Timothy over to you because I know he's going to show you what that looks like. It just shows you how close he was. He was, he was a kindred spirit to him, genuinely concerned for their welfare. Verse 21, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Again, this is inferring that Timothy's not that way, that Timothy does uh, seek after the, the interests of Christ, not his own. Now, we really don't know who they are, what that Paul's referring to when he says they all uh, seek their own interests. Most likely, it was the Christians in uh, Rome. Now, earlier on in his letter, he does mention that uh, these Romans, in- inspired by Paul's suffering, are boldly and courageously uh, proclaiming uh, the-, the word of, of God, uh, but apparently they still had some issues to, to deal with. They, they still uh, were more focused on themselves. I mean, you can think Paul saying, hey, I, I want to send some, a group of people back to Philippi to see how they're doing. Who's, who's going to do it? Who's going to volunteer? Oh, I'm sorry, Paul, I, I, I got to do this. And oh, I'm sorry, Paul, I got to do this. Oh, I'm not really good at traveling, Paul, I got to do it. But Timothy's like, I'll go, I'll go. Paul's like, I have no one else like him. They all seek after their own interests, not Timothy. Timothy loves Jesus. He's focused on Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. Verse 22, but you know, you know on a personal level of his proven worth. That, that, that word there, uh, doikime, is, it refers to his character. It literally means uh, uh, ascribing value or worth after a, a long period of careful examination. You all know of his pro- proven wo- character, of his proven worth that he served, that he served like a slave, like a servant with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. He's like, Philippians, you know him. He was right there, right alongside me. You saw him, how he served. He, he wasn't just, you know, just you know, giving lip service. He really meant it. He wasn't serving just because I was there because he, he had a heart to serve. He wasn't loving because, you know, I wanted to, you know, that's what I desired. You know, he, he has a desire. He, he wanted to love you and serve you. You see that. You see his, his proven character, his proven worth. And again, he brings up this, this relationship that he has with, with, uh, with Timothy. He's like, he, he served the furtherance of the gospel as a child serving his father. Timothy um, grew up in the city of Lystra, uh, located in modern, what is now modern day Turkey. And he grew up in a very interesting household. In, in Acts chapter 16, we're told that his mother was, a, was Jewish and a believer. So she followed Jesus. But his father was a Greek. And what we could uh, assume is that he was not a believer. But that didn't stop Paul, uh, Timothy from learning the gospel. Because on top of his mo- mother, he had a grandmother who also believed Christ. And together, his grandmother and his mother from an early age poured into Timothy, young Timothy, and taught him the scriptures. So you grandparents, I would just remind you, don't 
ever underestimate your influence on your grandkids because I mean it you have an influence on your grandkids for good and uh, Timothy was a recipient of that good uh, work and so Timothy uh, grew up and he dedicated his life to Christ and by the time he actually joined up with with Paul he was already even though he, he was a young kid he, we don't exactly know how young he was, maybe 20s, 30s. In the first century, adults were considered like around 40 years old. So he was younger, young man, but already he was spiritually mature, spiritually equipped and recognized by all the, you know, well-respected by the, the churches in, in his city and around the area. And so he joined uh, up with Paul on his missionary journey and, and Paul basically took him under his wing as, as like a spiritual father to his spiritual son. And it's like a mentor relationship. And he poured into Timothy and he prayed, encouraging him. I mean, it, it was great. Again, it's a relationship there. He's my, he's my, he's my child. He's my, my spiritual son. I'm his spiritual father. I trust him. And this is something um, I, I've been really, I've been excited to get to this. There's a little, little section of scripture. I've been excited to get to it because this is what I'm really, really passionate about one of the areas I'm really, really passionate about is that the church um, is made up of people in different ages, different life stages, different personalities, different senses of humor, you name it. The outside world looks at us and we're just a bunch of incompatibles meeting under one roof. And yet we're united. We're part of the same household. We have the same spirit working in us and through us. And, and a, a form of ministry that has um, been very popular for a little over 50 years has been taking this family, this, 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 this unit, and chopping it up into different groups. So you have a, a singles group, you have a couples group that are not married, then you have a married couples, no kids, a married couples with young kids, a middle-aged couples with older kids and you know, empty nesters and then retirees and, and so on and so forth. And these groups have their own thing. They have their own Bible studies. They have their own events. They do their own thing. And I believe that's a huge dis, it, it, it's, it's a disservice to the church, a huge disservice to the church because we've all been baptized by one spirit into one family. Now, I understand the reasoning why that became very popular, breaking up the church that way. It was, it was, a lot of it was spatial reasons. They couldn't fit everybody in a, in a Sunday school class, and so what do you do? You break them up. Well, how do you break them up? Let's just break them up in age and life stages, and let's just keep on doing that. And so church has just been assuming, all right, let's keep on going. So you've got the noses all here and they're doing their own thing and they have their own events and their own Bible studies. You have the eyes doing their own thing, the feet doing their own thing and so on and so forth. But that's not the body. We're supposed to be together. I like to call it intergenerational form of, uh, of ministry. Where especially the older who have been blessed with years of faithfulness to, to not perfect service to Christ, but faithfulness to Christ and the wisdom that comes from that age, becoming a Paul and finding a Timothy and pouring into them. I mean, Paul even tells the older women, instruct the younger women on what it means to follow Christ. I'm gonna be honest, if I be honest with you, I would not be 
the man I am today, I would not be the husband, I would not be the father, I would not be the pastor I am today had it not been for the Pauls in my life. I was, I was uh, 13 years, oh no, 14. I just turned 14 years old. And it was my first official high school uh, report that I had to write up. And we could pick any uh, subject and I chose to pick um, conducting because I was into music and, and all that. And um, our worship pastor at the time, his name was Mark Hamilton. Uh, he was really, really good at conducting the choir. And so I emailed him and said, hey, could I sit in on your rehearsal just so I can just observe and take notes and everything? He's like, oh yeah, sure, come on. The day of, it was Wednesday night, I sat in the pews and the choir was up in their little choir loft area, whatever. And uh, he turns to me and says, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm here just to observe. He's like, no, 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 you come up. <laughs> You're joining the choir. I'm like, okay. So here I am, 14 years old, the youngest kid there, joining the choir. He sat me up uh, down, uh, next to the baritone section because I guess baritones, it's an easy thing to learn. I don't know. But um, I don't know what it was, but he just, he sought me out and he continued to call me. He uh, poured into my life. He encouraged me. He prayed for me. He gave me books to read to, to help me in my, in my growth, my walk with Christ. And, and uh, eventually he invited me to join the, the worship team and he had me on mute so no one could hear my foibles or anything, but he taught me on how to, how to listen and everything. And it was just amazing. I mean, I was 14 years old, carried on that relationship. He just you know, and, and he, what was really cool is he invited me into the, the ministry world. You know, he'd say, let's meet for lunch at the church and kind of give you a, an inside look into the ministry life and the joys and the sorrows that accompany with it. And it was just amazing. He wasn't the only one. There's another guy. Um, so when I sat into the, uh, the baritone section, I sat next to a guy named Glenn Barr. At that time, he was a 55-year-old single man who had never been married but he loved the Lord and he, man, he showed it. And he just, for some reason, I don't know why, looking at a introvert, goofy looking 14 year old kid, he took me under his wing as well. And he poured into me and he loved me. And he's, oh, let's go out for dinner. And, and even that relationship continued all the way through college. And he would say, hey, let's meet at, at, at you know, Biola ca uh, cafeteria and we'll see how you're doing. I wanna know how things are going. How can I be praying for you? He wasn't the only one. Um, there were some songs that I could sing baritone and some songs I was just way too low. So I had to sing the tenor section and I would sit in uh, just the next row up and right next to me was a guy, Dave Only. He was the other tenor. And Dave Only was another man who just took me under his wings and just said, hey, let me pray for you. Let me talk to you. And I'd ask him questions. He was another amazing, amazing man. Um, and again, that relationship carried on all the way through high school, through college. He officiated, ended up officiating our, our, our wedding, Brianna and my marriage. Um, but he was a good, again, an amazing mentor, but he wasn't the only one. There's another guy, senior pastor, Robert Bishop. He was the one who really just showed me the, how, how, what it looks like to passionately preach God's word and to just love preaching God's word. And he actually gave me the, my first opportunity to preach. He just came to my office because I was working at the church at the time. And he came to my office and said, hey, listen, there's a small church that needs a pastor to preach on Sunday. You're gonna go ahead and preach because I, I believe you can do it and Jesus wants you to do it. And I'm like, okay, do I have a say? He's like, nope, you're doing it. <laughs> that was Robert. In addition, there was another guy named Craig Allen. Craig Allen was a, a, an amazing mentor who showed me what it looks like. No matter how old you are, you are still learning. You are still growing in your, in, in your knowledge of the word, in your 
becoming more and more like Christ. Really what these men showed me was what it looks like for a man who loves Jesus to be a man. And that relationship carried on and on and on. Um, it was on, on, our, my, on our wedding day. Brian and I, our, our wedding day, where we just said, uh, you know, our I do's and, and, and uh, we, we kissed and that was amazing. And Brianne, uh, no, no, uh, Dave Olney was, you know, I now pronounce you, you know, husband and wife and the hallelujah chorus, hallelujah, started playing. Literally, we had that playing as our exit song because um, we we're like, we're finally married. Uh, but it's like, I never forget, I'm looking at Dave Olney, my mentor since I was like 14 years old as well. He just looking at me like a proud papa. It's like, oh, I'm proud of my boy. I turn around and I see my dad in the front row and he's like, I'm proud of my boy. And I'm walking down the aisle and I see all those men down the aisles, them looking at me with that exact same expression. I'm proud of my boy. And as I, I walked um, out, of, of, we were just about to leave, uh, Glenn Barr, reaches over and he grabs me by the, the, by the, the sleeve and he's sitting next to his wife. He got married. Um, he's, he, he grabs me and he says, now begins your adventure. And it truly has been an amazing adventure. But again, I would not be where I am today had it not been for them pouring into me. I was a Timothy, they were my Paul. Don't ever um, disregard or think lightly of the importance, the seriousness of that relationship of a Paul to Timothy, of a mentor. For those of you who are older in this room, you're a Paul, where's your Timothy? Where's your Timothys? If you're young, where's your Paul or where are your Pauls? That's what's supposed to happen in the church. You know, I'm the, benef- I'm the beneficiary of that relationship and I can personally attest to you, God blesses that relationship. How's it going? How's it going? You know, it doesn't just, it doesn't just happen automatically. It's not just like, oh, let's create an event or a, a gathering and that'll just automatically start this relationship. That's not how it works. You go out and you look for those Timothys. And you, you young people, you Timothys, don't just think that God's gonna drop Pauls into your lap. You go look for those Pauls. Look for someone and say, you know what? I like how that person studies the Bible. I'm gonna go follow, I'm gonna ask him questions. You know, I like how they raise their kids. I'm gonna ask them questions. I'm gonna get to know them. Find them. Timothy found that in Paul. And Timothy was better because of it. So Paul says he served as a, as, a, as a child serving his father. Verse 23, therefore, in light of that, in light of who Timothy is, this really great guy, not perfect guy, no doubt he had his hangups. He was faithful. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately or at once, as soon as I see how things go with me. Paul's like, I don't know how things are gonna go. I don't know what the, you know, my, my trial's gonna be postponed if, if I'm gonna be in this prison for a long time. But so I'm gonna hold back on sending Tim, Timothy until I find out. Verse 24, and I trust, 
I am persuaded, I am convinced. And he uses this in the perfect tense, which basically means I was convinced in the past and nothing has changed. I am thoroughly convinced, I am thoroughly persuaded in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. So we don't really know whether this was revealed to him in a dream or a vision or prophecy, but evidently Paul real, was con- thoroughly convinced that his uh, prison sentence was going to end and he was going to be able to one day visit the, uh, the Philippians. And so, so this, you know, here's Timothy, young guy. Here's an example. You want to know what it looks like to follow in the steps of Jesus? Here's my spiritual son, Timothy. You want to see what it looks like for a a, a citizen of the kingdom to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Look at Timothy. He then continues, verse 25, but I thought it necessary, I thought it uh, uh, indispensable to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, we don't really know too much about Epaphroditus other than that his name is attached to a, a Greek god, and so possibly he was a was raised pagan and came to Christ and started serving the Lord. But look how he describes Epaphroditus. I I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. The word there is just literally like a real brother, a relative, a kinsman. it's It's a family term. Uh, and you know, Paul, even though he's a, he's a, he's an apostle, even though he's a pastor and he has authority, he's like, he's my brother. Epaphroditus, he's my brother. I love him. He's my brother and my fellow worker and fellow soldier, my, my co-laborer, my assistant, my associate, my helper and fellow soldier. We are in this battle together. Paul brings up the, in, in Ephesians 6 uh, that all of us who are followers of Christ are in a battle, but it's a spiritual battle. He says, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the principalities of the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle that we're a part of. God has already claimed the victory over that battle, but we're still fighting nonetheless. And Paul's referring to, to Epaphroditus. He's not bringing up ranks or anything, even though he has authority and, and he's a pastor. He's just saying, no, Epaphroditus, he's my brother. And we work alongside one another and we fight this good fight together. This is a great example of what Paul means when he brings up the the, uh, word koinonia in chapter one, the the word that's uh, usually translated for fellowship, partnership. Epaphroditus, he's, we're in fellowship together. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He says, who is also your messenger? The word for messenger is where we get the word apostle. It just simply means a, a, a messenger, a, 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 the bearer of a commission. Now, the question is, well, does that mean that uh, Epaphroditus was an apostle in the sense that Paul was an apostle? No, no. Paul had a unique uh, uh, commissioning uh, from God to do a unique service for his kingdom. He was a messenger, but a unique kind of messenger, a unique kind of apostle. But so was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was also a messenger, a messenger from the, from the church of Philippi to give a gift to Paul. Now, the word, this word, uh, uh, apostolos, again, where we get the word apostle, um, in the, there's a Latin version translation of the New Testament called the Vulgate, and they translate this word as missio. And this is where we get the word missionary. Now, missionary is one of those terms that 
I don't know if I like or not because it, 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 it gives the, the, the impression like, okay, there are people who go out into the world overseas. Those are the missionaries, but that's not me. You know, the truth is, is, is uh, we are all bearers of a commission. Jesus, before he went, went up to heaven, he said, as you're living your life, make disciples. We are called to make disciples. We are called to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is, is the Lord, he's the savior, he's the king. We are the bearer of a message, an amazing message, the bearer of a commission. We are all missionaries. And so missionaries are not just those who go overseas. They're those who even stay around. You know, again, because the idea is like, well, that's just, you know, missionary going overseas. That's just not my calling, you know? So I can just, you know, just live my life. No, no, no. You were also called too. You may not be called overseas, but you are still a bearer of a, a bearer of a commission. You are still a delegate, a messenger. So he says, you're the, uh, this guy, Epaphroditus, he's a messenger and minister to my needs. The word he uses for minister is where we get the word liturgical. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We call the Septuagint that refers to the, the service that priests would offer in the temple. Now in the Old Testament, uh, God's presence uh, physically dwelt in the temple. Uh, you know, among the people of Israel. And even though Israel had priests serving in the temple, they were all called to be a kingdom of priests, meaning they were all to consider themselves servants of God. When we get to the New Testament, it just gets even more amazing because now the presence of God doesn't rest in a physical temple, doesn't rest in a, in a physical religious building. It resides in those who follow Christ. We become the temple of God. That's what Peter brings up in, in, in 1 Peter, that we are the, the temple of God. God dwells in us if we follow Christ. So God's presence is with us. Not only that, but we are also a holy priesthood. So not only are we the temple, but we're also priests. And the implications of this are absolutely huge. Really, they're huge. Because you know, Paul brings up, you know, offer, offer your, your, your lives as a living sacrifice. That's your, your spiritual act of, of, of ministry. That's your, your spiritual priestly act of service to God. And then he says, whatever you do, whether you're eating, whether you're sleeping, whether whatever you're doing, do all for the glory of God. Which means your spiritual act of service, your priestly service, isn't only regulated to when you come to church, when you pray, when you read your Bible, when you give your gift, when you do something nice for someone, or you talk about spiritual things. It's everything. Every, every part of your life is an opportunity to glorify God. Everything in your life is an opportunity to serve God. We're all priests. The Holy Spirit lives in us and we are the temple of God. And so for here, for, for Epaphroditus, his priestly service was providing the need for, for, for Paul. So Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to send Epaphroditus. Why? Verse 26, because he was longing for you. He was continually desiring, strongly, intensely desiring for you all. Epaphroditus loves the church. He loves his, his family, his spiritual family. 
he came to Christ there. He, he loves them. He's grown up with them. He's maturing with them. And he longs for them. Maybe it's this idea of, 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 uh, of like he's a little homesick almost. I'm homesick for my spiritual home, you know? He says, because he was longing for you and was distressed. The word he uses for distress is only found two other times in the New Testament. And each time it's referring to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he was praying before he got arrested and he was eventually uh, executed. It's this idea he was, he was full of heaviness, full of anguish. He was troubled. Why? Because, because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. Literally, he was next door neighbors to death. That's how, close, that's how sick he was. But God had mercy on him. God showed compassion and pity on him. He didn't die. Now, again, we don't know whether this was a miraculous healing or it was just his body just did its natural process. Maybe Luke, the physician, was there. I don't know. But ultimately, Paul attributes it to the mercy of God. God did not allow him to, li- to, to, to die from his disease. That was a merciful thing on him. And he says, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrows. Like if, I, if, if Epaphroditus lost, man, I would have wept. That would have been devastating to me. I love Epaphroditus. And if he would have died, that would have been tragic. But also on top of that, to know that you in church in Philippi would be grieving as well. That's just like sorrow on top of sorrow. I don't, uh, I don't, I didn't want to deal with that. God was merciful, not only to Epaphroditus, but also to me. Therefore, in verse 28, I have sent him all the more eagerly, all the more promptly, this special sense of urgency. Apparently, um, Epaphroditus was, I mean, again, we don't really know uh, completely, but Epaphroditus possibly was supposed to not only deliver the gift to Paul, but maybe stay there and and help Paul along in the the ministry there while he was waiting for his trial. But here he's being sent back a little bit earlier. He says, therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him, you may rejoice, you may experience joy, and I may be less concerned about you. Unless uh, the, the, the church think it's shameful for Epaphroditus to arrive earlier than expected, Paul says in verse 29, receive him then. Welcome him, favorably receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold or possess men like him or of this sort in high regard, in high value, honored position, precious because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life, exposing himself to danger to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Because it's like, you know, you, you Philippians, you couldn't be here in person. You wanted to deliver your, your gift to me. You couldn't be here. And so Epaphroditus instead came. So the, again, here's another man, Epaphroditus. You want to know what it looks like for a, 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 a citizen of God's kingdom to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look to Timothy. If you want to see what it looks like for an individual to be humble, follow the, following the example of Jesus, look to Timothy. 
If you want to see what it, what it looks like to be an example of following after Jesus, look also to Epaphroditus. These two men. Now, Timothy and Epaphroditus, there really wasn't anything special about them. They were just normal guys, normal men. They weren't perfect, but they faithfully served God and God blessed them. God used them. Go with me real quick to um, Romans chapter 16. Last chapter of the book of Romans. So Paul's uh, closing out his uh, letter. And uh, we're in Romans chapter 16. Now I just want to begin at verse 6. So he's going to list a whole bunch of names. And I am going to butcher all of them. Um, And so I may not say them um, because it's embarrassing. No. Uh, He says, verse 6, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsfolk and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding in the view of the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herod. Herodian, my kinsman, greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the, in the Lord. Greet this person and that person, workers of the Lord. Greet that person, my beloved, and worked hard in the Lord. Greet this person, a choice man in the Lord. Greet that person. Who are these people? I have no idea. We don't know. They're just regular, ordinary men and women who love Jesus and are trying to be faithful to Jesus. They're not perfect, but they're trying to faithfully serve Jesus. The church has always been, since the moment it was birthed, has always been sustained, has been enriched, has been strengthened by unsung heroes. Not just the Pauls and the Peters and the Johns and the Luthers and the Billy Grahams, but ordinary people empowered by the Holy Spirit. People like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Lest we think that they're super, you know, superheroes or super spiritual heroes, whatever you want to call them. They're just normal men, normal people. For some people, they don't like that idea of ordinary you know, they, they, they want to live extraordinary lives. You know, I want, to, I want to make an impact. Maybe that's some of you. I want to make a big splash in this world. And not to be offensive, but you live in Lapine. You live in Central Oregon. I mean, chances are, not, not to say that God can't use you for a significant way. God could definitely use you. But most likely, like the rest of us, we're just going to live an ordinary life following the Lord, faithfully serving him. And for some people, it's like, oh, I don't like that idea. It, it, in the grand scheme of things, it almost seems like I'm just creating a little tiny ripple for the kingdom of God. And it's really not that important. If it really wasn't that important, why would Paul take so much time to talk about fellowship, partnership? Why would he talk about unity? Why would he talk about being soldiers together, co-laborers together? Why would he talk about not thinking of your own interests, but the interests of others, if it wasn't important? 
It is absolutely important. God uses it. Regardless of whether you think it's a splash or a ripple, God uses it. Don't get the impression that you don't have an important role to play in the church. You do. You absolutely do. The church, universally, globally, even locally, the church is blessed and made better because you are in it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, I thank you. I thank you for this, this word this morning. Um, I thank you for the genius of, of Paul to, to not waste a travel itinerary. Lord, he uses it to bring up examples of two individuals, two individuals who are kingdom citizens, who are, are living their lives in a, in a way that is fitting for those who follow you for those who proclaim the gospel. They show their partnership in in the gospel. Their fellowship shows their humility, them following the steps of of Jesus. Lord, um, may we follow in that example. May we be like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul and all those other individuals that Paul lists at the end of his letter in Romans. May we be faithful to you. May we continue to recognize that um, we are not in this world for our own sakes. We are here, Lord, because um, you have us, you, you have a, a, a mission for us. You, you, you have a message that we are to deliver. We are to make disciples. So may, may we live up to that, Lord. May your Holy Spirit give us the, 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 the power, the strength, the encouragement to, to live this out. Lord, I, I pray for those here in this church, those maybe even listening online who are older, I pray that they would see their position as a, as a, a blessing, as a, an amazing opportunity to be like Paul and pour into a young person. And Lord, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't just sit and wait for the young people to come to them, but they would pursue them out. And likewise, I pray for the young people. I pray, Lord, that especially... Lord, we we live in an age where there's tons of blogs and vlogs where we think we know everything. May you humble us and realize we don't know a lot. (laughs) And may we be like Timothy and find a Paul or find multiple Pauls, multiple mentors to learn from and grow. May you, Lord, bless this church. May we be united, may we be humble, may we follow the example of Jesus for the glory, for your glory, and Lord, for our joy. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and... uh...